Greetings to all of you here and all of you joining us online, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for joining us. And speaking of family, uh, some of you know Beth and I have two children. We have a, a daughter and a son. And my son, when he was little, loved playing with balls. Man, most boys do, right? Just love balls. And I remember this one instance vividly. He's sitting kind of on the floor, and we had this uh, little plastic football, all right? And we had some company over, and I said, hey, bud, watch this. And so my son picked up this football, and he chunked it and threw a perfect spiral, <laughs> left-handed. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, no, he's left-handed. And I had this passing thought, in full disclosure, of just saying, oh, no, son, don't use that hand. <laughs> use your other hand, right? Because it's just a right-handed world that we live in, right? But I didn't. I just kind of let him be who God made him to be. And it's turned out to be a good thing because now he's the starting pitcher of his university. And uh, there he is. And we were actually out there at his game last night. He went seven and two-thirds innings, no walks, 13 strikeouts. Whew. How about that? He was great. We call that a dad brag, any opportunity we get, right? By the way, dads, just let your boys be who God made them to be. Can I just say that on the side? You know, just if they're not an athlete, that's okay. If God made them to be an engineer or an architect or whatever, that's okay. Just let them be who God made them to be. Amen? Okay. So in baseball, I don't know if you know enough about baseball, everybody loves the lefties in baseball for some reason. We love the lefties, right? But it just wasn't so back in biblical times. 3,000 years ago in the ancient Semitic culture, they didn't love the lefties. It was a right-handed dominant culture. Let me illustrate it this way. Oftentimes when, in the Jewish culture, when you had a firstborn son, you would name him Benjamin because he was the first son, the son of honor and glory and authority, and you'd name him Benjamin. Do you know what the name Benjamin means? It comes from two Hebrew words, Ben, which means son, and Yamin, which means right hand. He's the son of the right hand, the son of authority, the son of honor. And so if you were a guest at someone's house, if they invited you over and you were the honored guest, when it was time to recline for the meal, you would sit to the right of the host because that was the seat of honor to the right side. Which, by the way, is why Jesus Christ presently in heaven sits to the right hand of the Father on his throne because that's the seat of honor and authority and glory. It's a right-handed, dominated culture which is why it's shockingly unique that we encounter one left-handed hero in the history of our faith. And I get to introduce you to him today. And his name is Ehud, all right? Would you turn to the book of Judges, chapter 3? Judges, chapter 3. Find the book of Judges if you'd like to use the YouVersion app. All the verses should be right there for you. But find the book of Judges chapter 3, and as you're finding that, let me just sort of set the scene for the entire book of Judges. If you're not familiar with it, there's a, a cycle that takes place in the book of Judges, all right? It kind of looks like this. The first thing we'll see is the people of God will sin in some way, and that sin will lead to servitude. In other words, they will come and they will have to serve another king, a foreign king. So sin will lead to servitude. That servitude will ultimately lead to supplication. That's simply uh, begging God, requesting God for deliverance. 
Okay, and God will hear their prayer and bring them salvation in the form of a deliverer. So when you hear the word judge, the book of Judges, think of deliverers, all right? These are men and women who are deliverers, leaders. They lead their people to, uh, through salvation, deliverance from tyranny and oppression. And then after the deliverers do that, they experience a time of serenity, of peace. And then that cycle takes place all over again. That cycle takes place seven times in the book of Judges. The episode that we're about to read is episode number two in the book of Judges. And here we are, Judges chapter three. Let's begin in verse 12. So now the sons of Israel did uh, evil again, second time, in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Okay, their sin led to servitude. Now, what sin? Oftentimes when uh, the pastors and I meet with people who want to be baptized, that's one of the questions we'll ask. Hey, sweet pea, tell me what sin is. Because if you don't know what sin is, you can't fully appreciate your salvation or what baptism is all about, the washing of your sin. And so we'll ask, you know, what sin? And you, kids get, give some of the best answers. But I'm going to go ahead and give you a cheat sheet. If you ever want to get baptized and meet with a pastor and we ask you what sin is, line number one, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the end of the day, that's what sin is. Because you know what, my beloved? His opinion is the only opinion that matters. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of what you're doing. It matters what he thinks. If he calls it good, it's good. If he calls it evil, it's evil. Doing evil in the sight of the Lord, that's sin. And in specific, in this instance, the people of God were committing what some call spiritual adultery. All right, so God, you remember, had entered into a covenant relationship with Israel, similar to our marriage covenant. So now God, Yahweh God, and the people of Israel are in covenant relationship. But unfortunately, the people of God were influenced by the pagan cultures around them, and they began to stray, and they began to worship some of these other false gods, committing, if you will, spiritual adultery. And the one thing I know about the Lord is he ain't having that. He is a jealous God, and let me explain. We're jealous for what is not ours, that's sin. He's jealous for what is rightly his, and that is holy. And he has entered into a covenant relationship with his people, and he is jealous for his people. And so when his people choose to commit adultery, spiritually speaking, against him, he is not a happy God. And so he allows, he even, the scripture said, strengthens the pagan king Eglon to come and sack his own people. That's how upset he is. He's a jealous God, jealous for what is rightly his. And if you'll notice, this went on for 18 years. 18 years of living under tyranny, oppression of this pagan king. And so finally, they beg God for deliverance. Verse 15, here comes the supplication. But when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, Here he is, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king 
of Moab. Okay, so finally they beg God. God, deliver us. We've been living under this tyranny and oppression of this pagan tyrant king for 18 years. Oh God, we turn back to you. Deliver us. And you know what God said? Come on back. Okay. And aren't you glad, my brothers and sisters, that we have a God who allows U-turns? These people had been committing spiritual adultery for 18 years. And then finally they turn back around and God says, welcome home. So it hit me as I was praying and preparing for our message this morning. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes stronger on me at different points in sermon preparation. And this was one. Someone here in this room or someone listening today needs to make a U-turn. And you feel like you've been gone or distant from God for a long time. You've been caught up in a pattern of behavior, some kind of an addiction, and you're almost scared to turn back to God and open yourself completely to him, kind of afraid of what he'll say. But I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word, I don't care what you've done, I don't care how long you've been gone. If you will turn back to him, his arms will be open to you and he will say, welcome home. He's an awesome God. Welcome home. So just, man, God allows U-turns. If you need to make a U-turn back to him this morning, his arms are open. Welcome home. So the people of God make a U-turn. God welcomes them with open arms, and he sends them a deliverer. Remember, that's what a judge is, a deliverer. Now, two things about this deliverer, Ehud. First of all, he's a Benjaminite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, the irony. Remember Benjamin, son of the right hand? So here he is, a son of the son of the right hand, and he's left-handed. And that term left-handed, we got to talk about this. Okay, 99% of the time when you and I read our Bibles in English, it means exactly what the original language meant. But there are a couple of times where it helps to know the original language, and this is one of them. I'm just going to be honest. In the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, when it says left-handed man, that's not exactly what it says. Here's what it literally says, that Ehud was shut of his right hand. That's what it says. He was shut of or from his right hand. Now, what that means is, I think there's a high degree of probability that Ehud was in some way deformed or disabled in his right hand. He couldn't use it. We don't really know exactly, obviously, what it was, but for whatever reason, he could not use his right hand. Deformed or disabled in some way. Crippled in some way in his right hand. That's our hero. Now, you may be asking, the Lord is choosing a crippled man to be the deliverer of his people to lead the battle against this tyrant pagan king. That sounds foolish to me. Yep, and that would be just like God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. There it is. And I think he loves to do that because when he does that, he gets the glory. And that would be Ehud's testimony. I, I may be 
shamed in the world. I may be weak according to the world. I may be lowly according to the world. I may be despised by the world, but in the hands of God, he can use me to nullify the things that are. And beloved, isn't that the gospel of Jesus Christ? When the son of God himself walked the earth, did his own people consider him weak and foolish and lowly? Was he not despised? And did God not use him through his death, burial, and resurrection to shame the proud and to nullify all of them and to nullify our sin? That's the gospel. God can take the foolish things to shame the wise. That's Ahu's testimony. That's Jesus' testimony. And it can be yours as well. If you'll just put your hand, your life into the hands of the living God. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China said this. He said, God chose me because I was weak enough. God chose me because I was weak enough. And in my weakness, he was strong. So watch with me how God uses this foolish, weak and lowly crippled hidden hero in our story. This is awesome. Hollywood needs to make a movie about this. Check this out. Verse 16. Now Ahud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, that's about 18 inches. And he strapped it on his right thigh under his cloak. Then he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon was a very fat man. That's not very nice. But uh, look, details matter, all right? This is going to come into play. Y'all hang on. And it came about that when he had finished presenting the tribute, that Ehud sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, silence. And all who were attending him left. And then Ehud came to him while he was sitting in his cool roof chamber alone, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king got up from his seat. He actually burned a calorie and stood up. He was so excited to hear this message. But then Ehud reached out, verse 21, with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt of the sword also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade because he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had left, the king's servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, well, undoubtedly, he's relieving himself in the cool room. And so they waited until it would have been shameful to wait any longer. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. And so finally, they took the key and they opened them and behold, their master had fallen to the floor, dead. The holy word of God. <laughs> That's Hollywood worthy stuff, man. That's the old cloak and dagger, like literally the old cloak and dagger. What I'd like to focus on first though, let's go back through this, okay? Verse 17, you, we need to understand, first of all, tribute. So it says that they presented a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Okay, we gotta understand what a tribute is. This is actually where we get our phrase to pay tribute. It comes from history. So. 
a, a, a pagan king, a foreign king would come and he would sack the land, sack the nation, and then every year he would demand a tribute from the people. You could say it was a percentage of their gross domestic product. They had to submit to this other king. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's similar in spirit to what Putin is doing right now with Ukraine, why he wants to dominate or sack that nation because in a sense he wants their resources for himself. That's what tyrants do. And so did the, the king of Moab wanted the resources of Israel for himself, so he demanded a tribute every year to be paid to him. Money, gold, food, animals, all that stuff, a percentage of their gross domestic product to him as a tribute. And so it's now 18 years of paying tribute every year to the king. This is the 18th time they're paying tribute. Surely this is getting old. And now the second half, verse 17. Eglon was a very fat man. Okay, I don't know about you, but when I think of him, I kind of get this job of the hut image. <laughs> like, if an 18-inch sword can get buried in his belly and the fat roll over that sword, like, even in modern-day America standards, that boy had a gut. <laughs> but then, okay, so they present the tribute, the fat man is happy. The Israelites then return, verse 18, but notice, this is huge. At Gilgal, which is at the border, and it's significantly amongst the idols, Ehud goes back because he saw an opportunity. Where everyone else saw an obstacle, Ehud saw an opportunity. By the way, that's the difference between successful people and not successful people. I'll illustrate it this way. I read a story years ago about this company that sent two shoe salesmen to Africa. They arrive in Africa and the first shoe salesman sends a telegram back to the headquarters and says, get me home ASAP. Nobody here wears shoes. But then the second shoe salesman sends a telegram back to headquarters and says, Send me all the shoes you can. Nobody here wears shoes. <laughs> Do you hear the difference? Where everyone else saw an obstacle, one man saw an opportunity. Everyone else leaves, but Ehud comes back. Verse 19 through 25, then he returns to Moab and he makes his way into the king's presence. And then through kind of a little white lie, he said he's got a, a special message from God for the king, and then he uses this opportunity to stab and kill him. Okay, so this is why, even though Ehud was shut of his right hand, he's left-handed. Now, normally, as a soldier, you carry your, this is about, really about the actual size of the sword that he had, and you carry it on your left thigh because we're right-handed, most of us, so it's obviously easier to draw from your left thigh if you're right-handed. But Ehud was shut of his right hand, and so he was left-handed, and so he carried his sword on his right thigh underneath his cloak. And so that's why I think first he was able to pass through the royal guard because of two reasons. One is they're looking for the dagger on his left thigh and they didn't see it. And secondly, he's deformed in his right hand. So the, the, the royal guard was like, this guy's safe. He can't harm our king in any way. So God used that to get him into the presence of the king, to get him alone with the king. And then with his left hand, he pulls the sword out and stabs him all the way in the gut and the fat just rolls over the sword. And refuse comes out of him and he dies. 
I'm telling you, Hollywood needs to do something about this. If I'd have read this story as a junior high boy, I'd have been more into God's word. I'll tell you that. But God used a foolish and weak man in the world's eyes to nullify a fat and proud man. And then having killed him, he escapes, and now it's time to finish the work. Verse 26. Now Ehud escaped while they were hesitating. That's the royal guard they were hesitating. And he passed by the idols back at Gilgal and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him. That's the, the battle cry. Went down with him from the hill country, and he was leading them. And he said to them, pursue them, for the Lord has handed your enemies, the Moabites, over to you. And so they went down after him and took control of the crossing places of the Jordan opposite of Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck and killed about 10,000 Moabites at the time, all robust and valiant men. So these guys weren't pansies. This was a battle. And they took 10,000 of them. Not one escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was at rest for 80 years. Ehud rallied the troops, the the left-handed, partially deformed or disfigured individual comes back, blows the horn, rallies the troops and says, follow me, we can take them. This is leadership. I, I don't know much, but I know this, that's leadership. It reminds me of what the president of Ukraine is doing right now. I remember our president offered him a, a free ride out of there. You remember what he said? I don't need a ride. I need ammo. The fight is here. That's leadership. You lead by example. By the way, all of us can do this. This is how to be a leader. You don't have to have all the charisma and the ethos of all that stuff. All you have to do is be willing to set a compelling example. This is what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.2. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Beloved, that's leadership, to set a compelling example that others may follow. And all of you listening can do this. No matter what your skill set is, no matter what your personality is, and all the young people listening, may I say to you on the authority of God's word, young people, students, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example of those who believe in speech, conduct, faith, and purity. And may I add a corollary to that? Old people, don't let anyone look down on you because you're old. Yeah, I got one yeah from the guy back there. He owned, he owned it. <laughs> Thank you. Old people set an example of those who believe in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Middle-aged people, bald people, I don't care, lowly, weak, despised, and misshaped in any form or fashion. Whatever your weakness or despised in the world may be, set an example of those who believe in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Set a compelling example of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and just let the chips fall where they may. That's Christianity. That's leadership. That's what Ehud did. And because of his leadership, Israel experienced 80 years of peace after that. This is the longest time of peace in the period of the judges. 80 years, that's four generations, biblically speaking. Wouldn't that be nice? Four generations of peace because of the leadership 
of a disabled man who simply put himself in the hands of God and said, use me. Use me as the foolish, weak being that I am to nullify the strong and the proud. That's Ehud's testimony. And it could be yours as well if you would do the same thing. It's the testimony of one of our own men in our church. His name's Gene Wright. Many of you know him, or at least you've passed by him. And he has a special relationship going with the deacons in our church. If you don't know who the deacons are, they're the lead servants in our church. And uh, I asked Gene if he would share a little bit of a story and kind of what makes him tick. What makes you want to serve God so much? And so he sat down with one of our deacons for this interview. And y'all check this out, all right? So 2020, right, Gene? 2020, the deacons kind of took over the process of um, picking up Gene and bringing him to church. We pick him up in the morning. We take him back after church is over with. We kind of tag-teamed all that, getting Gene to a Center of Hope, getting Gene's glasses done, getting Gene's uh, groceries, getting his car inspected, <laughs> just about everything, I think. So it started off with me serving Gene and the deacon serving Gene, but it's kind of become more of a, a friendship, a relationship now. So he's like my little brother, right? I can pick on him. <laughs> I get to pick on Gene. So Gene offers a lot of things. He is a staple here at church. I do visiting numbers with children's area and the center of hope through pantry. I think Gene, since 2004, has missed one Sunday of serving. So he's kind of a rock. And uh, I think that's been a big thing here at church is when people walk in, they see Gene, and that's the, the uh, faithfulness of that is a service to the church, and it's also a service to the kingdom. And I think um, there's not many people can say that. It's been a huge blessing for us because of his faithfulness, because of his servant's heart. Every time I pull up, or any of us pull up to his house, the garage door is open. If it's summertime and it's warm outside, the door is open to the house and he's just sitting there waiting. I mean, regardless of what's going on, Gene is, is ready to go. And I think that's such an encouragement to us because we're not always that excited about coming to church, but Gene is. And uh, it's, it's just been a, such a blessing to us just to see that. God has given me this strength to uh, walk through situations, but were unexpected. For me, I've got to spend a lot of time with Gene. I see him at least once or twice a week um, when we go and do things, take him to get his car fixed, take him to get his glasses. Like I said, it's been my little brother is, is what he's become. There's no excuse so that he uses. I mean, that's, that's what makes him so tough and so faithful is that there's nothing that stops him from doing what he wants to do and he, he has set his mind to do. There's no excuse for anyone who thinks they can serve. Gene is our Ehud. Missed one Sunday in 18 years. Love that guy. If you see him, would you give him some love and just pat him on the back? 
and thank him for serving. If you've been with us for the past four weeks, we've been uncovering some of the hidden heroes of our faith story. Several weeks ago, we looked at Abigail, and what we learned was that through kindness and courage, you can overcome a king. Then a few weeks ago, we looked at this guy named Jephthah, and what we learned from him and his story is that rank in God's kingdom is not determined by our heredity, but by our availability. And last week, if you were with us, we looked at Rahab, the prostitute, and, and what we learned as through faith and courage, you can change the future of your family and your loved ones. And then today through Ehud, we've learned that if you will just simply put yourself limited though you may be into the hands of God, God can use you as a weak one to shame the strong and to nullify those who are and to make a difference for his kingdom and his glory. Amen. And so may I just challenge you with Gene's words? If you'll just wake up every day, say, Lord, here I am. Send me no excuses. Amen. All right, let's pray. So God, our heavenly father, as a church family, as your people now, I know that there are many listening who feel like they're hidden. They're not up on stage or they're not visible in a lot of ways, but nobody and nothing is hidden from you. There's nothing hidden from God's side. Everything is open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so Lord, would you just stir the hearts of the present day hidden heroes for your kingdom? Stir the hearts of your people to serve you in behind the scenes ways, ways that won't get any glory or acclamation in today's times, but they will in eternity. Would you stir our hearts and renew our hearts with the, with the courage of Abigail and the faith of Rahab? Would you, make, would you make the men in our church warriors again? Warriors of Christ, warriors for your kingdom, warriors for your glory, men who refuse to back down for your truth and your grace. We, having done everything, we stand. We know that our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this present darkness. But we will put on the full armor of God. We will put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, and we will stand. And having done everything, we will stand for you. Make us warriors like Jephthah and Ehud, limited as we are. Lord, we put ourselves into your hands, and we say, here we are. Send us no excuses. In Jesus' name, amen.